Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week we feature a 2013 interview that I conducted with John Bogdanov, one of the classic artists who was responsible for the death of Superman, as well as many other great comics from both Marvel and DC. At the 2013 San Diego Comic-Con, I had a chance to eat breakfast with John, his son Kal-El, as well as a friend named Chris Viella, to discuss uh, the death of Superman, the joys of camping outdoors, his love for classical comics, and his abortive Kickstarter project, Strongman, which never really took flight, but which provides some interesting insights into John's theories on characters, on outsiderness, and uh, what makes a great story a great story. I think it's 30 minutes of good podcast listening. Hope you enjoy. Leave feedback in all the usual places, and thanks for listening. Twentieth anniversary of his death, which means he died at fifty-five. He died at the age I am right now. Oh, wow! There's a positive spot in the morning. So yeah, uh, that's that's a feat. Yikes! Keep her in the shirt. Yeah, you're not some fan who just happened to like the series. Uh, No, no, I. You you worked to get the shirt. The trouble is, it's no longer mint. True. I, I don't think I ever wore it back in the day, and it was like, what am I keeping it if I'm not going to wear it for? And the minute I slipped it on, 20 minutes ago, the minute I slipped it on, no longer mint. <laughs> there it goes. That's the first time you're wearing it. That's right. Uh-huh. That's the first time you're wearing it. Yep. Really? Yep. I wonder it looks so fresh. Yeah. The trouble with those drippy S shirts is that the, to make that gloppy drippy S, they had to put so much plastic on them that even if you didn't wear them, they cracked and dried and screwed up over the years. It's, uh, well, this one held up pretty well. Yeah, it's alright. It's not going too bad. It's a little worn looking, but they were pretty gloppy and thick back then. Who drew the bloody ass? I don't know. I mean, it was this is a graphic shit, you know, a gra- what I had to spell it for me, G-A-R. Graffiti? Graffiti shirt, yeah, graffiti shirt. They, Wait, somebody had a drive, didn't they? They used it for the, for the poly bag, too, I think. Yes. I think, yeah, oh, right, right. So it's probably somebody in the D.C. production department back then who just took the regular S emblem and drew drips on it. I was hoping for a better story on that one. You know, magic, you know the we DC, would have never known either. The D.C. production department has a, has a rich history. I mean... Uh, Irish Snap is is, uh, is a great character and one of the great names in comics history. Irish Snap. Ira Snap. Really? Not yet. Yeah, no, Irish not, Snap. Not like Irish that? Snap. Like not, <laughs> not like drinking an awful lot of whiskey <laughs> and his like face planting. No. Irish Snap. No. Ira Snap. Oh man, he drew the most beautiful ads though. He did, didn't he? Yeah. Well, he was a sign painter. Oh, okay. He started out as a sign painter, and he, and he ended up, you know, doing that sort of nifty, decoy 1920s lettering that he learned in uh, 
as a young Simon breathing apprentice, he sort of I did. He sort of defined DC's um, look, especially its silvery. It's such a classy look. It's a very classy look. The Art Deco A and the action. Yeah, it survived all those years. It survived a long time. I think it influenced Gaspar Saladino, you know, in the 70s. I think on some level that Irish map look continues to continues to help define the DC brand. I have, and, and maybe this is just you know maybe this is the conceit of an old style, but I feel you know I've done a lot of licensing over the years, and that's that's really all about for me it's all about being a steward of the brand, trying to edify the brand, not just DC, but, but Superman the brand, Batman the brand, etc. And um, and I really get the feeling that earlier artists who defined the brand continue to influence it, even with artists who are young, so young that they have never read the original artists. Like I think that there are. Um, well, the obvious choices. I think everybody in the business is heavily influenced by Jack Kirby, even if they've never actually read Jack Kirby. Because Jack sort of developed the visual language of superhero storytelling. Uh, and they're just things that you do. Um, and I think with lettering, perhaps because so much of it is... is uh, Downloaded from from uh, uh, comics craft that that um, you know Gaspar Saladino and Irish Snap and, and uh, Artie Simic uh, all still heavily influence the look of comics craft today. Yeah. Further to the next generation. Yeah, and I kind of, I kind of like that. I, yeah. I, I, I like that that Irish Snap is a legacy. You know. Yeah, it's the language of comics too. The language of comics, one of the things people don't tend to think about as much. But when the when someone's great at lettering, it stands out. I'm yeah. a Dave Sim fan, right? Sim, yeah. Sim's lettering, fantastic. No one ever did it like that. John Workman, another one. Yeah, John Workman's amazing. Really distinctive, uh, beautiful hand. But I mean, Dave Sim does his own. That's you know. Um, Jim Aparo used to let her himself, right? Yeah. Jim Aparo yeah. used to let her himself. It was like, he did, he did everything. He penciled, inked, and lettered himself. He just produced the entire page. I'm working that out. Super Summits had uh, invited not just the writers, but the pencilers, the inkers, even the colorists, everybody. DC would fly us all together, uh, and we'd all participate in the plotting of the continuity for the next year. Artists, writers, and... Artists, artists editors. writers, uh, editors, but I mean, you know, I don't know when a colorist is, uh, before that had ever been included in the writing, you know? Uh, uh, inkers were included in the writing, pencils were... So we, we all really co-plotted everything, and that, I mean, it was madness, because when Stan and Jack were... were working Marvel style it was just Stan and Jack or Stan and Ditko yeah uh, um, Mike was trying to have that level of collaboration among four teams <laughs> so four teams of writer artist and inker um, and 
it was it was phenomenally ambitious. Yeah. But he was very, I think, very. I think his intention was to to uh, create a Marvel Age at DC, which, considering the success of the Death of Superman, I think he did successfully. Uh, that wasn't the only thing that was exciting about those the books in that era too. There was just an energy to the Superman books. I think. I mean, you kept the readers because they were interested in the stories. Well, the event was part of it, but you know, when you did the four char- the four fake Superman coming back. Uh, I mean, the event was the event never started as an event. The event started because we were we were grumpy that our year's worth of continuity that we'd worked out uh, was being scuttled for the sake of the Lois and Clark TV show. Uh, so it was a last it was a last minute decision born of our uh, frustration and the feeling that we were doing all this great work on Superman and people weren't noticing. So it, it wasn't a bit, an event. Uh, after we did it, of course, uh, Warner's wanted an event every every year, but uh-huh. <laughs> but it started out really as as just a story, and its success took I think everybody by surprise. It was amazing. As the story goes, it was a slow news day when when the death of Superman came out. It became a giant media story, and people rushed the comic stores before they knew it. Two million copies were sold, or something. And I wonder. I wonder if it was really a slow news day. If there were ever actually slow news days, I really. What I think it was was the general public all knew Superman. Those tights, that cape, that archetype uh, was dear to everybody's heart um, worldwide. It was, the, it was the most recognized uh, popular culture popular culture character in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people just wanted to know he was there. And for super to learn that Superman was dying, even if they hadn't read a comic book ever, uh, was disturbing to people because they wanted to know he was there. It was it was like a piece of America was dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people who had never read comic books before or hadn't read them in years uh, jumped on it and reacted reacted in a way. Um, you know, I think it had. I think it had political uh, uh, allusions. Oh yeah. Connected to the time of, of, of the mid '90s, and I think that um, uh, I think it activated. I think it activated a lot of national identity and also world identity uh, with this character. So, um, you know, it's fun to say, oh, it was a, it was a slow news day, but you know. That that was a story for several large news cycles, right? You know, in, a, in an exciting time in world history. So I think it was just, I think it was an, a sociological event. It's interesting how much Superman reflects the times, it reflects the kind of people's approaches to the world. I, I read a great essay about John Byrne Superman being a reflection of Reagan era optimism and return to small town values. And well, that that really makes sense. Okay. So I gotta ask, what, would, what was something like Comic Con like when the death of Superman was happening? Way smaller. Okay. Um, it was more like a convention, like bad comics primarily. Mm-hmm. It was not a media event. But were you mobbed at that point? Oh, what? You were. I mean, people thought it was big then compared to other conventions. They were like, "Yo, it's filling half the con- half the convention center." Yeah, I think actually that first year was it was it was a quarter of the convention center. 
Uh, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, oh yeah, that's right. And they were talking about, I think next year we're going to have to go half the convention center. You're right. That's what we were talking about. It was really, yeah, really weird. We're actually in New York. The entire time we lived in New York. And everyone's went to the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building. It wasn't until we'd actually moved out of the city on the main and came back visiting that we did any of that stuff. Because when, when we were just living there, we were just living there. I'm a big, big advocate of now of, of uh, doing the tourist stuff. Doing the tourist stuff in the city. while you're a local. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like your birthday. When we, you know, oh yeah. Yeah, you go to the beach because you live near. I mean, reasonably near the beach in Malibu, and if, you know, if you don't sometimes take the time to go up and lie on it, what are you doing? You know, people <laughs> who do yeah, People come from all over the world to hang out on the beach in Malibu. Let's just go to Malibu. We live here. Yeah, but you got stuff to do. You got errands to run, yeah. projects to work on, phone calls to make. You get so bogged down you in do. your life, right? You, you do, absolutely. Yeah, it takes a birthday or something like that, but. But when, when it comes around, I like to try and do it because, you know, otherwise I feel like it'd be like if you had a whole room in your house you didn't use ever. Uh-huh. Um, but in addition to that, it's just, you know, I, I've i ended up doing much, much more in terms of outdoorsy hiking and camping and that kind of thing than I ever did living in Maine because... You know, you have such a narrow slice of the year to do it in there, and really, Los Angeles, it falls off into wilderness very quickly at the outskirts of the city. I mean, not if you go south and into the Inland Empire, but if you go north or, you know, northeast, um, it's very, very easy to get back to nature very quickly. For obvious reasons, the outdoors is a big thing for all of us in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I never think of L.A. as being a place where you can just get out and... Yeah, Yosemite's not far away. No, it's really not. It's it's a stone throw. We in fact last year we um, we hiked up Half Dome, which is a kind of thing. And I was like, you know, it's so close that when my buddy was like, I'm gonna get the permits when we're there. I said, great, I'm gonna train up to this. And that's the kind of thing that if it hadn't been so handy and convenient to do it almost any given weekend. Um, probably would have said, well, you know, that's a, I'll do that down the road in life somewhere if I was living back east. But because it's right there, why not? <laughs> that's cool. So, uh, Strongman's obviously from the heart. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I, I very much wanted to succeed. I, I think of it as, at least for me, you know, they're at the start of everything. But at least for me, it's kind of a legacy project. Been thinking about it, working on it for a while, or it's just something that. Well, let me ask it this way. Yeah, What's the genesis and, of the project. Yes and no. The 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 archetype uh, for for just the character design has been floating around in the back of my mind for years. But the idea to do a to do it to do a story about a, um, a you know a, a proto a team of Proto superheroes in the age before superheroes. Yeah, it was basically something in the vein of what about a what about a circus strongman and a group of circus freaks who are like the X Men. You know, they're they're outcasts um, of society to a degree, but together working together like a family, they're heroes. They have powers and abilities 
um, that others don't. And in a lot of ways, the kind of, you know, world of, of you know, heroes in a world without superheroes is kind of like starting to trend pretty well with things like kick-ass and all that kind of stuff now, you know what I mean? It's like the whole notion of, uh, you know, everybody looks at comic books and they're like, oh man, superheroes, if only they had existed. But like, that kind of like, you know, heroic and courageous stuff and, and unique abilities and all that kind of stuff, that already has always existed. Maybe not to that heightened level for sure, but there's certainly, you know, the same type of trope. When you, th when you think about the basic archetypal superhero costume, specifically Superman's original tights and cape, with pants on the outside and the lace-up boots, that is, you know, that was clearly uh, drawn from uh, circus costumes of uh, aerialists and tightrope walkers and strongmen. Um, you know, an aerialist or a, a tightrope walker would uh, yeah, ascend to the top of the big top in tights and a cape with little modesty briefs on the outside, and he'd rip off his cape before uh, you know launching into the air. And I think I think that without the circus, I think without the circus we wouldn't have. Superman's costume the way it is now, and and uh, by extension, we, we superheroes would not have been a, a thing in the same way at all. Things, uh, there may have been that fashion adventure in a sort of a pulp kind of way, but the iconic image of the superhero would not exist without the circus. And the, the idea really, really appealed to me because I um, had read a book. Of, it was the life story of a guy called the Mighty Adam. Uh, not the shrinking superhero, but an actual real-life um, strongman athlete who did amazing. I mean, he could he he would uh, do things like tie airplanes to his hair and prevent them from taking off, and he could bend railroad spikes around his arms and just a really incredible he wants, stuff you read about it. And you're, and you're he, like, I don't know how that's yeah, even possible, but there are pictures. He was once shot in the head with a 22 and stopped the bullet on his forehead. It's a sign. It's a documented event. It was it was not a an, wow. it was not a part of the act. Not part of the act. It was not part of the <laughs> he, uh, act. Some some guy had uh, developed an obsession with his wife and came to try and shoot him. Shot him in the face with a small, very small bullet, but still. And uh, and yeah, it left a giant bruise, but he lived right through it. And um, <laughs> it pierced, and there are it all pierced kinds of guys and flattened yeah. against his skull. There, there, there are all, there are all kinds of guys like this. You know, famously, probably the greatest. The strong man of the age was Louis Cyr, who, um, is it Cyr or Tier? I don't know quite how to pronounce it. CYR. Yeah, CYR. And you can look him up. And he's the guy from whom we get that image of the big handlebar mustache and that kind of thing. He was like a French Canadian, um, like lumberjack child of lumberjacks, right? And he, he was phenomenally strong. He, you know, could lift horses on his back and he once lifted like a railroad flat with 16 men on it over his head. Like just incredible. Incredible strength. Risk lifting um, a railroad car. Yeah. Plus 16 dudes. Yeah, it was, it's, um... I can't even imagine seeing that. <laughs> I can't imagine even, even prying up one end of one, you know. It may I, have yeah. just been a... Yeah, have you ever tried to lift a car? A car a platform, for the yeah. flat on? Yeah. Flat, yeah. For a place of flat, I mean. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, just un unbelievable. And these were all real guys <laughs> who, uh -huh. who, who actually did these things. And the... the so... You know, the idea had, for a character similar to this had been kind of rattling around in all three of our heads for years, you know. Um, and it was when Chris kind of vocalized 
it in this meeting that we all said, oh yeah, what about if it's like this? And it kind of all came together. Um, well, Chris's, Chris, the genius of Chris's idea was that, you know, circus freaks and show, show folk were outcasts of polite society back in the day. We were all watching Boardwalk Empire at the time, so we were sort of steeped in the era. And uh, uh, we're sort of uh, society outcasts at the time, but they all had unique characteristics and unique abilities. And that was just like the X-Men. Um, and, you know, I came in with the idea of, well, the look at... You know, I, me- I remember an early drawing of Schuster of, of uh, preliminary drawing of Superman in a tank top that made me that helped me realize the circus roots of superhero costumes and um, and so this was a way this a, Chris created the perfect venue for this for the idea of a, of a strongman superhero and the team concept fits so well as a period piece which I had never really thought of sort of the images in my head, but the idea of of uh, actually doing a period piece comic book that was also your contribution. Have at one point or another, in very different eras, been kind of touched by comics, um, where what you want to get back to every issue is not necessarily the overarching "Who's going to destroy the universe" plot, but just the family of characters. Um, and so in that way, it's very, it's very, they're very continuous in terms of uh, character development and grow, the growth of those relationships, even when they're being episodic in terms of what the threat of the week is. I, I read a, a whole bunch of the um, Mark Wade and Michael Ringo Flash family stuff of the 90s, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, occasionally they'd go on sort of on kind of long arcs of, of, of strings of stories, but very often there'd be kind of a, a villain who'd wander in. But what was really going on um, was the, the creation of that, that Flash family and Impulse and Max Mercury and all those characters at the time. And then, you know... For me, it was the, Stan the, and Jack yeah, Stan on Fantastic Four. I want to pick up on that thread quickly. About the, the family that, thread. That fanta- excuse me, Fantastic Four and the books like that. It's what made the Marvel movie, uh, the Avengers, uh, so successful was this kind of like those characters kind of... They were essentially forming a family as the Avengers it, in that movie, and it was like, it was really cool. Yeah, they're, they're you know, in, in the kind of classic Marvel age of comics, there are all those moments where like... You know, caped and costumed superheroes are like walking around on the street, having a hot dog, and that, that little falafel uh, tag <laughs> right, on yeah. the end of Avengers. For me, is super important. It's really, really important to why that movie is good and why those comics were good. Um, if you know, if you're always pedal to the metal with some flavor of ongoing crisis, then that becomes the baseline. Yeah, if you're screaming, glass of water. if everyone uh, is screaming all the time, mm-hmm. then no one's ever louder than anything else. So it's it's very important for us in this book um, to uh, really invest in those in those quieter moments. Or, but yeah, it is very important for us to explore those kinds of um, those downtone moments and and focus invest in the uh, continuity of relationships ahead of the continuity of plot. 
I think there's a big flaw in a lot of the material that gets created, not just today, but always, where the, the ideas, the characters and the concepts over the characters. But people don't respond to concepts in the same way that they do to characters. I mean, Superman has resonance. X-Men have resonance, as we were talking about. The Avengers have resonance as a group of people who come together to do something greater, but are still doing stuff after. Yeah, I mean, isn't isn't a big part of the fun of the X-Men somewhat also the fun of, like, it's like going to Hogwarts, you know, going to going yeah. off to, to the, the school to make friends who have all got very different lives and backgrounds, but all have these common uh, touchstones of experience, and who, like, fall in love and fight and dicker and all this kind of thing, but then when there's something that needs doing, they come together and do it. And I, 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 yeah, I don't think you can undershell the importance of that. I mean, when I, when I when I discovered X-Men, you know, when Chris Claremont and John Byrne were doing it, um, back in the late 70s, uh, it really had much of the feeling of the early Fantastic Four for me in that um, Chris was investing very heavily in character bits. Uh, when, when we did Fantastic Four versus the X-Men, he would write scenes where she-Hulk and the Thing have a concertant in a in a coffee house somewhere because Ben wants to smoke his cigar, you know. And he'd spend pages on this, uh, and it did nothing to advance the overarching uh, plot of what the heck is Doctor Doom up to. Uh, uh, it was it was it was a, a tangential thing, but it was the kind of scene that, as a reader, made me want to just come back and spend time with the characters. And I think also as an artist, really sort of, he was playing to my strength with character and, and emotion and gesture. So. Uh, and and, and it, the other thing that it does is that that it makes the really heightened moments of high stakes, life or death, seem really exceptionally scary and exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not always like that, you know. You've you've gotten comfortable and, and and fallen in love with this with these characters and with this world, and, and suddenly threat actually feels like threat again. Um, so, so it's <laughs> yeah. I, but you know, but there's a cozy aspect to it too. I mean, there's there's a honestly one of the things that I like about Lovecraft, and I'm I'm going to get a lot of uh, enemies here, but Part of why I love Lovecraft so much is because it's sort of like cozy horror, in a way. I mean, yes, okay, there, there's impossible geometry that drives you mad just to think of it, right? But there is something, there's something about curling up with uh, an H.P. Lovecraft story that's kind of cozy and fun. Yeah, the, the language and the mood. And the language the mood, and the mood and sure. the atmosphere. And, and uh, it's uh, just like a, sitting in a comfortable leather chair. Yes. On a stormy day. <laughs> On a stormy day. That's right. In, 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 a, in a nice little drawing room in Arkham somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, also I think about the great TV shows, the classic Trek or... or uh, the Avengers, or Vintage X-Men, or Vintage Fantastic Four, uh, where you know the, the, or the Superman show when I was a little kid, I mean, to use, to use even a more childish example, you kind of know that all the toys are going back on the shelf at the end of the episode, mm-hmm. and that no matter how dire the threat, there's going to be a satisfying resolution. 
Uh, you don't necessarily know how it's going to shake out. Um, you know, uh, every week in Doctor Who, somebody you really like dies. People die. They, Doctor Who is wonderful at at uh, drawing uh, incidental characters that you fall in love with in just a few lines, uh-huh. and then they end up end up being red shirts and dying. Uh-huh. So, so you don't really know how it's going to shake out, but you know somehow it's going to shake out good, and so you just got to be there for that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there's there's the element of reliability of fun and characterization. Uh, uh, a hero who smiles, um, uh, just plain enjoyment that uh, that Strongman really gives us. Uh, just uh, and and not just as not just working on it, but reading it. You know, it, it's very much the feeling, very much sort of the feeling uh, that you know I had when Jack was doing the his fourth world opus at DC, and even though one was coming out every week, um, uh, I had to start drawing in between weeks because I just needed more. <laughs> I just needed more, so uh, I had to make my own, and that's how I got started drawing comics. So It's interesting that there's a lot of older creators, so to speak, not old, but, you know, uh, who are coming back to Kickstarter, and you have following, you have fans who, who've uh, read your work, but for whatever reason, you're not in the monthly books at this point, and... Uh, there's a family of kind of supporters to kind of bring along with you to the Kickstarter, which I, which I think is interesting. We've seen that over and over again with a lot of the, like the uh, uh, Starstruck Kickstarter, for example, where they brought over kind of a, a cohort of fans to continue to be supportive of them. They've enjoyed their work in the past. It's like a long dialogue, I guess. It is. It's like a long dialogue. It's like it's you know it's a it's a new sort of economy, and it's a new sort of Society, it's it's uh, it's it's a it's a cultural innovation. It's a new culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Oh, thank you.